Hi, welcome to Trained. At Nike, we believe that greatness isn't born, it's trained. And that means more than just a workout. Each episode, we'll bring you conversations with leading experts in what we call the five facets of fitness, training, recovery, sleep, nutrition, and mindset. I'm Ryan Flaherty, Senior Director of Performance at Nike. I train some of the world's best athletes, like Saquon Barkley, Russell Wilson, and Marcus Mariota. Today, we're talking about the physiological effects of sleep and how getting a good night's rest can improve your overall health, performance, and mood. You're listening to Trained, presented by Nike. Every couple of seconds, a decision is made on the court. Do I pass? Do I shoot? Well, that comes down to the prefrontal cortex. And if there is a part of the brain that suffers earliest and most severely by insufficient sleep, it is the prefrontal cortex. And I think it's not just um, the mood and the anxiety, but it's also those critical decision-making components that can win or lose games. And underslept brains are not going to be making optimal decisions. That's Dr. Matthew Walker a professor of neuroscience and psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. Matthew's book, Why We Sleep, Unlocking the Power of Sleep in Dreams, has helped so many people realize what's at stake when we don't get between seven and nine hours of sleep each night. As the founder and director of Berkeley's Center for Human Sleep Science, Matthew has dedicated his career to understanding why sleep deprivation is one of the greatest public health challenges, and ultimately, why a good night's sleep is the best thing we can do to restore our body and brain every day. Matthew and I are going to be talking a lot about sleep deprivation and its effects on our physical health and performance. But before we get into that, I wanted to start this episode off by acknowledging that getting seven to nine hours of sleep each night can feel like a big commitment. In an ideal world, we'd all be going to bed and waking up at the same time every day and getting the perfect night of sleep. But the reality is many people have responsibilities that are beyond their control, and we can't always find the time to sleep. There are people who work late hours or live with multiple roommates or who are new parents and have to get up four to five times in the middle of the night. Even my athletes who have to prioritize their health and well-being in order to perform at their best. They struggle to get the right amount of sleep each night. For example, I work with some of the top NFL athletes, and many of them are based on the West Coast. When they have a game on the East Coast, the time difference really throws off their sleep schedule. But rather than overhaul their whole lives, we've come up with a sleep plan to make sure they're ready for game day. Here's the ideal scenario. Three days prior to game day, my players start to adjust to East Coast time. They go to bed at 7 p.m. and wake up at 4 a.m., so that when they get to New England or Philadelphia or New York, they're ready to play. But there are even smaller things they do to make sure they're getting an ideal night of sleep. They sleep with blackout shades so the natural light doesn't wake them up. They turn off their screens a few hours before they go to bed to signal their brains that it's time to wind down. They keep their room cold to regulate their body temperature. Some of my athletes keep their rooms around 65 degrees, while others, who like their room a little warmer, keep their thermostat at 67. These tips might seem small, but they're effective and easy to implement. So even though life, work, and stress can prevent us from getting the perfect night of sleep, there's always something we can do to get us closer to that seven to nine hour goal. If you want more information on some of these sleep tips that my athletes use, then check out our previous episode with Dr. Sherry Ma. But right now, let's get to my conversation with Matthew Walker. (music) 
Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It's a privilege and a delight to be with you, Ryan. Great. Well, thank you. I, um, I'm currently down in California um, training a group about 25 NFL athletes. And I was just talking to them today about sleep. Can you talk through some of the, the key things that happen when you sleep uh, physiologically and the effects on performance? So I think if you look at athletes who are sleeping just, let's say, five to six hours a night, firstly, we know that the time to physical exhaustion will decrease by about 10 to 30 percent. So, for example, let's say you have a runner who's training for a 10K. Um, If they've had five to six hours of sleep in the night before they run, they're going to get physically exhausted by 7K rather than the 10K that they've actually trained for. Hmm. Second, what we also know is that insufficient sleep will actually decrease your aerobic output. So the capacity of the muscles to actually influence the highest exertional force also decreases. And we've seen that in the studies. We see decreases in sustained muscle strength and peak muscle strength. One of the other things that seems to um, occur is an increased rate of lactic acid buildup when you are underslept. And then you can go up into the lungs. And what you find is that when people are just trying to survive on those five to six hours of sleep, there is a decrease in their blood oxygen saturation. They can't exhale the carbon dioxide from their bloodstream as efficiently And then finally, what's interesting, a a recent discovery is that the ability of the body to cool itself through sweating and perspiration is actually also impaired when you are underslept. So you can sort of add all of this collection of factors up together and you can see why sleep really is this sort of neglected stepsister in the athletic conversation of performance today, I think. No, that's great. I hear a lot of people asking me, okay, I get it. I should sleep, you know, eight hours or more, but I have all these sleep disturbances. I'm not able to stay asleep for the full eight hours. I'm tossing and turning. I'm waking up. And, you know, I would love to go in with you a little bit on what are some of the causes of sleep disturbances. So alcohol is probably the most misunderstood sleep aid uh, in sort of inverted commas. Um, Unfortunately, um, you should avoid the nightcap for the following reasons. Firstly, alcohol is a class of drugs that we call the sedatives. And sedation is not sleep, but many people will mistake the former for the latter when they have that nightcap in the evening. They think it helps them fall asleep. What it's simply doing is knocking out your cortex. It's just sedating your brain and it does not produce naturalistic sleep. So that deep sleep of non-REM sleep that's the stage of sleep that you will actually miss out on with alcohol firstly because you're in a shallower state of sleep. The second problem with alcohol is that it actually fragments your sleep. So you will actually end up waking up many more times throughout the night. Now, often you don't remember waking up However, in the morning, um, during the day, you'll feel unrestored and unrefreshed by your sleep. And you don't put two and two together because you don't remember waking up. And that's one of the other problems with alcohol's impact on sleep. I think the the last component of alcohol um, is that it's a a very powerful blocker of your REM sleep, of your dream sleep, um, which is happening in those last sort of couple of hours of the night. And we know that REM sleep is critical for a collection of um, functions, functions such as um, regulating your core body temperature. Um, There's some interesting work that REM sleep may actually improve motor skill memories um, so that if you are 
drinking that alcohol, not getting that REM sleep. You're going to be shortchanging the brain of some critical motor skill learning that should have been happening during sleep, which would prevent those types of benefits emerging on the training field the next day. So I want to talk about another drug that we use every single day being caffeine um, and, and its impact on sleep because a lot of people are, you know, dependent on caffeine to feel alert in the morning. I'm raising my hand as one of those people. <laughs> um, but how does caffeine work and what are its effects on the body and its relationship to sleep? So caffeine is a class of drugs that we call the psychoactive stimulants. Um, to understand how caffeine works, it's probably good to understand how sleepiness actually works. So from the moment that both you and I and everyone listening woke up this morning, a chemical has been building up in our brain, and that chemical is called adenosine, and it's the sleepiness chemical. And the longer that you're awake, the more of that sleepiness chemical, the more of that adenosine builds up in your brain. And after about 16 hours of being awake, you should feel plenty sleepiness, uh, sleepy. You should have enough of that sleep pressure, as it were. And now this is not uh, a mechanical pressure. It's just a chemical pressure. But you should have mm -hmm. enough of that sleepiness pressure weighing down on you that you can fall asleep easily and then stay asleep. The way that caffeine works is that it will race into your system, up into the brain, and it will hijack those receptors in the brain for that chemical called adenosine. And it will jump onto them and it will block those receptors. So essentially what caffeine is doing is coming into the brain and it is hitting the mute button on your sleepiness signal to the brain. So, you know, let's say it's, you know, it's eight o'clock or nine o'clock in the evening, you're feeling tired, you have an espresso after dinner and you feel wide awake. Why is that? It's because your brain is being fooled into thinking it hasn't been awake for as long as it has. And so that's the first thing that caffeine will do. It will stimulate the brain and it will keep you awake. And that's the mechanism by which it does that. Um, the, there are several other problems with caffeine that people probably should be aware of. Um, first, it comes back to our conversation about alcohol, which is the duration of action. So when we speak about chemicals and drugs, you may often hear the term half-life. And that simply just means um, how long does it take for half of that chemical to have been removed from your system, as it were. Now, it turns out that caffeine has a half-life of about six hours. It has a quarter-life of 12 hours. And what I mean by that is... If you have a cup of coffee at midday, a quarter of that caffeine is still circulating in your brain at midnight. So if you have a cup of coffee um, with lunch, it's the equivalent of tucking yourself into bed at night at midnight. And just before you turn the light out, you swig a quarter of cup of coffee and you expect a good night of sleep and it's not going to happen. And so the, that duration of action of caffeine, I think, is probably underappreciated um, by a lot of people out there. So if you were to give somebody advice on to what they're, how they should consume caffeine throughout the day, if they were someone who, again, I'm speaking for a friend, but really talking about myself, of uh, <laughs> recommendations for how I should consume caffeine for me to still get, you know, a, a great quality night of sleep, what would your recommendation be? I think several things. Firstly, um, it's always good to ask uh, the question, you know, why do I feel the need for caffeine? I think sometimes I often wonder whether if you're drinking caffeine before, you know, 10 or 11 in the morning, it may be that you're actually self-medicating your state of chronic sleep deprivation. 
And so if you feel as though you can't operate without caffeine, it may actually be good to ask yourself, you know, am I getting enough sleep? Um, and another good index of that, by the way, just parenthetically is if you were to set your alarm and your alarm did not go off, is it likely that you would sleep past that alarm or sleep past that time? And if the answer is yes, then it probably means that you're not getting enough sleep. That's probably the easiest test that everyone can do out there to ask, am I getting enough sleep? But coming back to caffeine, you know, I think you can use caffeine strategically, certainly in the morning to help you wake up. Um, some people, and I'm actually one of these people, even if they're getting, you know, a good eight hour opportunity, which I dedicate myself to, um, I have what's called sleep inertia, which is this sort of period of the morning where, you know, for the first half an hour, you know, you say to your loved one, uh, you know, please, darling, please, you know, just don't speak to me for the first 30 minutes. <laughs> I'm not going to be the best version of myself <laughs> because there's this kind of carryover effect of sleep where it lingers for a while and it takes your brain, you know, a little bit of time to get up to operating temperature or kind of cruising speed. So you can use caffeine strategically and, you know, stopping caffeine after, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, depending on when you typically go to bed, is probably a good rule of thumb. Um, certainly okay. trying to stop caffeine somewhere between 12 to 14 hours before you are expecting to get into bed that following night would be very wise indeed. So I want to shift direction just a little bit. I know there's a psychological and a physiological connection to sleep and weight control, but can we just talk about the physiological connection right now uh, between sleep and weight control? So that relationship between sleep and body mass and weight control is now very well understood uh, and it's quite disturbing actually. Firstly, what we found is that once you start to get below six hours of sleep uh, a night, there are two critical appetite hormones that go awry because of your insufficient sleep. Those two appetite hormones are called leptin and ghrelin. Now, they may sound like hobbits from Lord of the Rings, but they are actually uh, real hormones in your body, real chemicals. <laughs> um, leptin is the signal that says to your brain and your body, um, you are no longer hungry, you are satisfied by the food that you've just eaten, you should not eat anymore. Whereas ghrelin does the opposite. Ghrelin actually says, no, you're not full yet, you should eat more, you're still hungry. Um, if you start to short sleep people, those two hormones go in opposite directions that you really would wish did not occur. What I mean by that is the signal in your brain that says you're full and you're satisfied with your food, which is leptin, that is blocked by a lack of sleep. That's impaired. So you lose the satiety signal. You lose the food satisfaction signal. What's worse is that ghrelin, the hunger of hormone, actually ramps up and is amplified by a lack of sleep. So now you actually gain a strong signal of hunger and you lose the signal of food satisfaction. And ultimately what that unleashes is a remarkable appetite. So people who are sleeping, um, let's say, you know, five or six hours a night routinely will often eat on average about 300 extra calories each day relative to when those same individuals are put on eight hours of sleep a night. Wow. And if you add that up across a year, that ends up being about uh, 10 to 12 pounds of um, obese mass that someone could put on, which... Um, for uh, people out there may actually start to um, to resonate, unfortunately, with insufficient sleep. So that's the first thing that we know um, changes. It's not just, however, that you eat more. 
It's also a change in what it is that you want to eat. And here again, the news isn't good news. So when you are not getting sufficient sleep, yes, you eat more in general, but the foods that you typically eat in excess are foods that are the heavy hitting carbohydrates, sort of the pastas, the breads, as well as the simple carbohydrates, simple sugary foods. Those are the things that the brain and the body seem to crave and devour when the brain and body are insufficiently slept. So that's probably another reason why you get that quite severe um, weight gain. The other side of that coin, by the way, is quite interesting too. If you're trying to manage your weight by um, dieting, for example, but you're not getting sufficient sleep, 70% of all the weight that you lose will come from lean body mass, in other words, muscle, and not fat. Not fat, yeah. Because what we've discovered is that when you are underslept, your body becomes stingy in giving up its fat. It won't release the fat. It holds onto the fat. So what you lose is exactly what you want to hold onto. And what is maintained is what you're trying to lose. So that's just another one of those demonstrations as to how this appetite uh, and this weight man management uh, balance is impacted by insufficient sleep. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, Matthew will break down his top five tips for improving sleep that everyone can use tonight before they go to bed. So stick around, and we'll be right back. If you're a trainer, join a community of trainers looking to make fitness better for everyone. Learn from leading experts in training, recovery, sleep, nutrition, and mindset. And get an exclusive 30% discount on Nike gear. Apply at nike.com slash ntcpro. What are some of the tips you have for people in terms of specific foods that they can eat or, 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 you know, foods they should shy away from and also timing of their last meal? In terms of timing, I would sort of, you know, try to perhaps um, finish your last meal um, at least um, three to four hours before going to bed. In terms of what to eat, um, the research is not particularly clear on that front. I would say it's one of the most under-researched areas when it comes to sleep, um, sleep and diet. Um, we know in the impact of sleep on how you control your appetite and weight, but how food actually impacts your sleep is much less clear. What we certainly do know is that diets that are high in sugar and low in fiber typically lead to much worse sleep at night. Um, that's probably not surprising because diets that are high in sugar and low in fiber are typically bad for just about every physiological system yeah. as we're finding. But sleep is not immune to that influence. And I think that that's good to know uh, for people too. Um, we've done some studies where we've taken individuals and we've put them on um, insufficient sleep, let's say uh, five hours or four hours or sleep deprive them entirely. And then we put them inside a brain scanner and we show them a collection of different food types um, from very desirable to uh, undesirable foods. And we look at how the brain is responding and how much they desire those foods. Um, and what we found is that without sleep, the brain actually shifts to a primitive pattern of activity. And it's one that favors uncontrolled impulsivity. Um, in other words, what we found is that the rational control regions at the very front of the brain, an area that we call the prefrontal cortex, that part of the brain, which normally keeps our sort of hedonic food desires in check, that region is actually shut down. And 
and worse still, these deep primal brain structures that actually drive impulsive decisions, they are actually ramped up by a lack of sleep. And so as a consequence, you find yourself at the food counter, you know, reaching for another slice of pizza or ice cream rather than, you know, leafy greens and some, you know, oatmeal and some, you know, uh, some dried uh, raspberries. So both brain and body are interacting when it comes to sleep. And then also at the meta level perspective, just as you said, all of the physiological systems are all interacting. Sleep impacts food. Um, food impacts sleep. Both of those impact physical activity. Um, we know that all of these systems are not unidirectional. They are bidirectional. And an imbalance in one will cause an imbalance in the others. Yeah, amazing. So I'm, I'm, I was doing some research and looking through and found with lack of sleep increases an excessively high level of, of cortisol. Can you talk about the impact that cortisol has in excessive high levels based on bad sleep on your gut? Certainly what we know is that when you are either chronically underslept, meaning that, you know, you're just trying to survive on, you know, six or seven hours of sleep um, consistently, or when you're totally sleep deprived, um, cortisol is one of the chemicals that spikes. Um, and cortisol is a stress-related chemical. So insufficient sleep leads to higher levels of cortisol, higher levels of cortisol, um, lead to impaired immune function and also chronic inflammation throughout the body. Both of those things you could well imagine for an athlete are critical. You need recovery sleep to get down that inflammation for you know muscular recovery, joint recovery. And what you also don't need to do, which if you look at um, you know some of the, the heavy hits in teams is when players get sick. It's not just injury, but when sickness comes into a team, that can be devastating too. And you can sleep yourself well and avoid that. It's a wonderful health insurance policy in that regard. Absolutely. What is the impact of lack of sleep on mood? We have seen marked impacts on mood. And the way it seems to, to work is this. It's no big surprise, but um, sleep will actually change the magnetic north of your emotional compass in a negative direction. So you are more likely to see things as glass half empty rather than half full. You have a negative mindset. And when we think about, you know, and I work with, um, you know, many high performance uh, teams, um, both uh, professional teams here in the US and the UK, positive mindset is a critical aspect. It's key for teams, but where it's really essential is also in individual um, sports. You know, there often what you're seeing is that the physiological difference between athletes is very small. What makes the difference between someone who wins and someone who does not win is usually a psychological difference rather than a physiological difference. And so having that positive mindset promoted and and maintained, flourished by way of sufficient sleep is going to be critical. It's it's a non-starter to talk about mindset and training the mind and, you know, developing, um, changing the way you deal with adversity and, and, and stress and, and fear and anxiety, because if you're not sleeping well, those you're you're basically fighting an uphill battle that that is really difficult to win. That's right. Um, and so sleep as it being the foundation of that, you know, in order for you to really train your mindset. And we've talked on this podcast a bunch about mindset and how athletes think and elite athletes think and the greatest ever. Um, how how they, they their minds are, you know work and their mindset is that it's a non-starter unless you're sleeping so it's that's just the baseline it's got to be your foundation you're absolutely right that there's that that foundational bedrock of sort of mental health um, is put in place every night by by sleep you know so much of you know athletic performance especially you know just take a you know a, an 
NFL team or an NBA team, let's say, every couple of seconds, a decision is made on the court. Do I pass? Do I shoot? Many of those choices you can see when, let's say, a player just irrationally will make a pass and you just think, oh, you know, that was the wrong pass. And they, almost from the point they release the ball, they know it themselves. Bad choice. Well, that comes down to the prefrontal cortex. And if there is a part of the brain that suffers earliest and most severely by insufficient sleep, it is the prefrontal cortex. It's the part of the brain that makes us most human, but it's the part that is most vulnerable to insufficient sleep. And I think it's not just um, the mood and the anxiety, but it's also those critical decision-making components that can win or lose games often on the court. Um, and underslept brains are not going to be making optimal decisions. No doubt, or even reaction times, right? I mean, in how many sports do we know that reaction time is everything? That's right. So if you've been awake for 20 hours straight, or let's say you've only had four or five hours of sleep in the past 24, um, your reaction time performance is as impaired as someone who would be legally drunk. We understand now the risks of sleep, of, of lack of sleep and lack of quality of sleep, but what are the five tips you would give everyone that they could incorporate tonight um, to help them improve their quality of sleep? Yeah, there are, I think, five things that people can do right now to start sleeping better. Um, and these are sort of tips or rules, but I, I think people actually respond to reasons and not rules. So let me, I'll try and unpack each one with the reason behind it too. The first tip is regularity. If there is one thing that you do and one piece of advice that you take away from this uh, podcast, it would be regularity. Go to bed at the same time and wake up at the same time even if it's the weekend or if it's a weekday, or even if you've had a bad night of sleep, still wake up at the same time and get your system back into set. That is, regularity is king. You know, the body um, has a rhythmic system to it called the circadian rhythm. And the body responds well to regularity and rhythm. And that's what you're doing. When you start to sleep in late at the weekend, let's say that you normally wake up at seven, but at the weekend you sleep in till 10, well, come Sunday, you have to drag your body clock all the way back by three hours and you repeat that week by week by week. And it's what we call social jet lag. And it's the equivalent of flying back and forth from San Francisco to New York every weekend. You know, it's torture on your biology. So regularity wow. is key um, and keeping it regular. The second uh, tip we've spoken a little bit about is temperature. Keep it cool. As we mentioned, aim for about 65 degrees is optimal for the sleep of most people. Um, and that will drop your core body temperature throughout the night. That will hasten the speed with which you fall asleep. But it also will actually deepen the depth of that deep non-REM sleep that we also discussed. So keeping it cool is the second tip. The third tip is darkness. We are actually a dark-deprived society in this modern era, and we need darkness at night to stimulate the release of a hormone called melatonin. And melatonin actually helps the timing of healthy sleep onset. Now, when we come home in the evening, we're usually bathed in artificial light, we're staring at screens in the last hour before bed, and so your brain still thinks it's daylight. It still thinks it's daytime rather than night. And so it will not release melatonin. And as a consequence, you get into bed and you struggle to fall asleep because you're not getting the signal of sleep onset from that spike in melatonin that should naturally happen. So the advice would be in the last hour before bed, try to stay away from screens. 
but also dim down half of the lights in your house. You know, we don't need all of the lights blazing in the last hour. And when you do that, you will actually be surprised at how sleepy it will make you feel. And that's melatonin coming into. So that's the third tip, which is darkness. The fourth tip I would have is walk it out. And what I mean by this is if you're in bed and you've been lying in bed for maybe 25, 30 minutes awake, don't stay in bed because your brain is an incredibly associative device and it very quickly learns the association between your bed being the place of wakefulness and not sleep. Wow. And I often hear this a lot from uh, patients and people um, in the public. They all say, look, I'm falling asleep watching television in the evening, but then I get into bed and I'm wide awake and I don't know why. <laughs> and the reason is because your brain has learned that connection between your bedroom being a trigger of alertness and wakefulness. And you need to break that relationship. So the advice would be get up, don't stay in bed walk to a different room or if you've only got one room or um, you're in a sort of a one-bedroom apartment just sort of go to a different location of uh, the room and then in dim light just read a book um, don't use screens don't check email try not to eat and then only when you're sleepy should you return to bed and there is no time limit for this only when you are very sleepy go back to bed and that way your brain will relearn the association that your bed is your place of sleep and not your place of being awake um, so walk it out is, I think, a good piece of advice. You know, the, the idea there, by the way, is you would never sit at a dinner table waiting to get hungry. So why would you lie in bed waiting to get <laughs> yeah, sleep? Great point. <laughs> so there's no need to do yeah. that. Um, the, the final thing is something that we've already really discussed, which is what you consume from um, a drink and a beverage perspective, which is alcohol and caffeine. So, you know, trying to stop caffeine at least 14 hours before you expect to get to sleep in the evening. So let's say sort of try to cease caffeine after about 10 a.m. Uh, in the morning and then trying to avoid the alcohol in the evening. It really is. Um, it, it can be devastating for your sleep at night. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. And I know so many people out there are going to get so much from this. Well, thank you for having me on and giving me the opportunity. And, you know, it's wonderful to partner with people like yourself to get this message out there. Um, I now anoint you a sleep ambassador uh, in the field. So thank you again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Here's one thing from my conversation with Matthew that stuck out to me. It's something everyone can apply to their own training routine. I think that if you asked people why they think they need sleep, they'd say it's to feel more energized. But that's only partially true. Like Matthew emphasized throughout our conversation, the benefits of sleep go way beyond just feeling alert and awake each day. Every physiological or psychological process is affected by sleep. Sleep plays a huge role in regulating our cardiovascular health, our stress hormones, our blood sugar levels, our memory formation, and so much more. So when we get seven to nine hours of sleep each night, we're actually improving our overall long-term health. We're all guilty of undervaluing sleep. There's this cultural myth that in order to be successful and productive, you've got to give up sleeping well. But the truth is, it's critical for success. To be physically and mentally prepared, we need sleep. And sleep is an easy opportunity to get a leg up on your health and performance. It can be really hard to eat a clean diet or go to the gym five days a week. But adding an extra hour of sleep each night, that's an easy win. It's obvious from listening to Matthew that sleep is a critical part of performing when you're awake. 
It's a really important thing to remember if you've plateaued in your training or if you just want to get to the next level. If you're looking to take your training up a notch, check out the Nike Training Club app. In it, you'll find holistic guidance and free workouts designed by Nike experts. It's a great way to stick with your training goals, no matter how much time you have, where you are, or what's going on in your life. Go check it out. That's Nike Training Club app, available on both Android or iOS. We'll be back next time with a conversation with Olympic gold medalist and one of the greatest sprinters of all time, Michael Johnson. This is Trained. Talk to you soon. Consult your doctor before engaging in an exercise program of any kind. Use good judgment and common sense about your own fitness level and ability when engaging in a training program. If something doesn't feel right, stop immediately and seek medical attention as necessary.